I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Join me on a quest to find awe and wonder in all nature, human or wild, vast or small, encounters that move us beyond words. So my parents bought me a pair of Prims with a Z binoculars. These binoculars were dreadful. They almost looked like a German U-boat pair of binoculars. I swear the birds would jump further away. But the joy of bird watching is that all you need is a book, a pair of binoculars, and a sense of wonder about the natural world or birds, and you're off. Equipped with a sense of wonder for the natural world, a field guide in one hand and field glasses in the other, Mike was indeed off, off on the journey of a lifetime. Birds were but the first of many passions he would cultivate along the way. So don't think where he would land professionally was ever a foregone conclusion. It wasn't. His road would fork many times, but at least we know where he started. His journey started with birds. Mike Dilger is our guest. He's an ecologist, a student of natural history, a writer. He's best known by the British public as a TV presenter for the BBC. And at the age of nine, he did indeed announce to his parents that he was going to become an ornithologist. Television wasn't yet in the picture for him, but things in life tend to come at their own pace, like going to school, then college, or marrying or starting a family, or one day waking up to discover that you've happened to turn into a botanist. And I was looking for this amazing plant called spring gentian, the bluest flower in the world. And it's incredibly rare. And it opens up these petals, it splays them. And it's an absolute stunner. And I went there and looking for this plant and nobody else was there. If it was a bird reserve with a rare bird, there'd be 30, 40 people looking for the rare bird. We're going to follow Mike on a few of his life journeys involving more than just one passion, from his days as a little kid with irrepressible curiosity for flycatchers and falcons, pheasants and phalaropes, to the way he strikes me today, which is pretty much like the little kid with irrepressible curiosity for the aforementioned species and pretty much for every other living thing. In a very particular vein, we'll also consider his most recent quest, his answer to the isolation of COVID-19. In 2021, Mike set out to locate 1,000 different plants growing by the homes and highways or in the hedgerows and highlands of Britain. His new book is titled 1,000 Shades of Green, A Year in Search of Britain's Wild Plants. As part of our mission to try and see 1,000 different shades of green or 1,000 different wildflowers in Britain, in one year. It now allowed me to travel all over the UK. And there was one plant that I was more desperate to see than many others. For the purpose of my list, all plants were equal, but some were more equal than others. I love the rare ones, the beautiful ones, the ones that tell a story. And there's one species right on the top of three mountains in northwest Scotland that I was desperate to see. Had you ever been there before? I've spent a lot of time up in the Scottish Highlands. It's kind of my second home. I probably have about six or seven weeks a year there, either working as a television presenter or a host, 
doing wildlife tour leading or just writing about my travels in the Highlands. And I know mostly Speyside, a really familiar place to many people who visit Scotland. But I was going right to the northwest to an area that's not very well known and a mountain called Cull Moor, which I've never climbed before. Accompanying me on my mission up Culmore was Dr. Barbara Jones. And she's the world expert on this weird, tiny little lily that lives on top of the rocks. So she knows uplands incredibly well. So she was going to be my interviewee when we walked up there. And she's an incredibly experienced mountaineer. I'd given myself two days to climb the mountain and find this very rare plant. And the night before, we looked at the mountain of Culmore. And the weather was astonishing. Blue skies, almost a thousand metres of altitude. It looked really easy and appetising, a gentle stroll up the hill. It would be no problem finding the plant, I thought. The following morning, we turned up in the lay-by, which is the leap-off point for the climb up to Colmore. And the weather was atrocious. It was completely fogged out. A quick aside here, you really should look up Colmore, just to get the proper sense for this mountain and its environs. It's spelled C-U-L space M-O-R, and it's just as remote and mysterious and magical as you can imagine. The ghosts of Macbeth and Macduff, not to mention the ghost of Banquo himself, are palpable here. And of course, bear in mind, it's July, which is the flowering time of this plant and there are midges everywhere the infamous scottish midges that chew you to bits for breakfast so there we are getting bitten by midges getting rained on in a fog can't even see the mountain i'm thinking this is a disaster there's no way we're going to be able to climb the mountain we've got one day tomorrow and it looks like the weather's turned it looks like it's going to be really bad i've traveled 600 miles dragged a university lecturer up from Wales to northwest Scotland, and we're not even going to be able to climb the mountain, let alone look for this rare Arctic alpine plant. But Barbara's an old hand at this, and she turned around to me. Do you know what? I think we'll be fine. We'll just hop or jump or poke out of the cloud, and we'll experience beautiful weather. Now, I wasn't convinced. I was thinking... I don't think so, Barbara. I think it's terrible. I can still see no more than five or ten metres in front of me. We hit the slope and we start to climb. And then the path peters out. And I am blowing by now. I walk my dog a lot, so I'm pretty fit. But I am sweating buckets. And Barbara's just ahead of me. And she suddenly just disappears. She's gone. And I'm thinking, I'm I'm climbing over these massive two-metre, three-metre square boulders. I think if I fall and turn my ankle here now, I hope I've got a mobile phone signal or cell phone signal because we're going to need an helicopter rescue. And then suddenly, I just popped out of the cloud. I just literally, just my head popped out. The view in front of me is astonishing. The cloud below us now was like a cotton wool sea and all the other mountains close to Colmore like Sullivan and Quinag were just poking out of the cloud or out of this cotton wool sea like black icebergs. It was one of the most remarkable views I've ever had. And about 10 metres in front of me, Barbara was just sitting smiling on a rock and she went, I told you so. 
So the rock there is billions of years old. It's a, it's a boulder field that looks just like tundra you would see in Alaska, in Canada, in North Norway or Sweden or Finland. And we're looking for this plant. There's hardly any vegetation at all. And then Barbara does it again. I hear a chuckle of delight and we sink to our knees. And there it is. The plant, of course, the whole reason behind the expedition, it figures as number 779 of the total 1,000 plants that he aimed to find in one calendar year. And, of course, we won't let Mike leave us without a name and full description of the plant, though not quite yet. I think most naturalists like to see things they've not seen before. I always get a buzz out of seeing new things. I mean, maybe there's an element of ticking them off. And as I've seen a lot of things, be it in Britain or America or South America or in the tropics, it's getting harder and harder to see new things. And it's also the thrill of the chase, Marcus. So if it takes me a long time to find it, I'm like a dog with a bone. I will not give up. And it makes finding that creature, that plant, all the more exciting. It's so thrilling. It's constantly just finding new things is what drives me, what gets me up in the morning and what gets me to bed at night with the excitement about getting up the following day. Mike isn't kidding when he says he goes to bed all primed for the next day's adventure. But when he was just nine, he went to bed, yes, with excitement, though not necessarily for the next day. Instead, he would crawl under the blankets with a flashlight and a bird guide with no intention of sleeping. We need to go back to this first passion of his, not plants yet, but organisms with feathers beckoning to him from richly colored book illustrations. And I remember for my ninth birthday, my parents were beginning to give up on me as this feckless child that would never have any interests or never have a passion outside of school or work. And they bought me this book by Bruce Campbell, and it's Bruce Campbell's Guide to Birds in Colour. Now, each page had two birds, and I would just play this fantasy bird-watching game. My parents were quite strict and sent me to bed early, and I took my torch or my flashlight into bed with me, and I'd make this wigwam shape under the bed, and I'd play the fantasy bird-watching game. Black-tailed godwit. Great grey shrike. Montague's Harrier, Wilson's Fallowope, all these beautiful birds I wanted to see. And I thought, I want to try and see every single species of bird in that book. For me at that age, it was whales. Maybe for you it was pirates or Pokemon or Harry Potter. Or maybe whales. Whales are good. Whatever the obsession was... If childhood was ever charmed for you, your various experiences of enchantment probably included crouching under the blankets with a book and flashlight. For Mike Dilger, fantasy birdwatching wasn't enough after a while. He needed to be out looking. And my birthday's in November, and then shortly after is Christmas. So I said to my parents, I'm going to become an ornithologist, a birder, a birdwatcher, a twitcher. I need a pair of binoculars, or as we call them, a pair of bins. You will, of course, remember that we started out with that present, a Christmas gift, it turns out, for nine-year-old Mike, that pair of lousy but good enough binoculars that got him out from under the covers and into the woods. And so off he went, 
somebody probably said tally-ho. Seems right to say that he would have been armed with Bruce Campbell's bird guide as he went. I imagine that his first foray was into his own garden and that he checked off his list birds like robins and finches. That waterfowl probably came a bit later, that peregrine falcons were still a distant conquest. But Mike can tell us the kind of thing he saw. I saw this bird perched on this branch. It was a lovely spring May day. And this bird just took off. Snap of the bill. It caught an insect and it landed back on the same perch. Took off. Snap of the bill. Landed back on the same branch. It was a flycatcher. So I pull out my book. There's two types of flycatcher in Britain. There's a pied flycatcher, which is, as its name suggests, pied, black and white. And there's a spotted flycatcher, which is kind of spotted, but not really. And I was looking at my spotted flycatcher, half on the path, half off. And this is back in the mid-70s, and I just got lost in the moment watching this beautiful behaviour of this bird cleaning up all the insects. And here we come to the part where innocent little Mike learns a brand new word. And then I looked behind me and I saw this couple jogging. And they were jogging up the footpath and they were going to jog perhaps round the woodland and then jog back home. And this is back in the 70s where you don't see many people walking around with a pair of binoculars. And I didn't know what to do. So I just thought, what would my great heroes, David Attenborough and David Bellamy, the botanist, do? So I basically hid in the hedge. And as they ran past, the woman noticed me hiding in the hedge. And she went, oh! And she said to the bloke, did you see that guy in the bushes? And he said, yes, obviously a pervert. And I I was 10 at the time. I didn't know what a pervert was. (laughs) I I looked at my book because it's a bird called a peewit otherwise known as a green plover or a lapwing. <laughs> That's the right reference work for peewit. Wrong if you're looking up pervert. I'll help you out with the former because we rarely have peewits this side of the Atlantic. The peewit, or lapwing, is about a foot long, has rounded wings and a crest. Coloration is mainly black and white, but a bit greenish on the back. Females and young birds have shorter crests than the grown males, and the name peewit comes from the sound it makes. I do know what a pervert is now. Because obviously, in the 70s, some spotty little kid walking around with a pair of binoculars is a peeping Tom up to no good. Getting caught by this couple hiding in a hedge, seeing this amazing bird. I thought, that is just... I want to spend the rest of my life looking at birds and watching wildlife. And that was that one defining moment that has, I'm basically 40-odd years further down the line, and I'm more obsessed than ever. I just need to know emotionally how you coped with that particular, unique, rare interest of your own that set you apart from others, and you were a little bit self-conscious about that. Yeah, I think nowadays, if you're into a subject or a niche passion, then you can find your tribe quite easily online. But back in the day when I was a kid... I thought I was the only one interested in wildlife. And I would go to nature reserves and I would never see any other children there. I'd see blokes, middle-aged men, usually with beards, barber wax jackets, wandering around. And he goes, I've seen any birds are interesting recently. And I had this chat with, I was a young lad having this chat with much older people. And I, my abiding memory is never seeing children at these places that I went to visit. 
also during these years, beginning to take shape as part of his identity, was a kindly regard for living things. We had a pond at school, and I used to love going to that pond. And I remember some of the older kids, it used to be a pond that had frogs in and frogs coming to spawn in early in spring. And I remember once seeing some of the naughty boys from one of the older years throwing bricks at the frogs. And I went to tell the headmaster, and they all got suspended. But I'm quite canny because I'm quite small, but I've got a really big mouth, and I'm good at making friends with really <laughs> big guys. So they found out it was me that grasped them up or told on them because they were killing the frogs. And so for three or four weeks until they forgot about it when they were back in school, I just hung around with a lot of big friends. I just couldn't stand the thought of them killing those frogs. How ignorant, how arrogant, how just idiotic of them. So yeah, I, I, I always knew I was kind of slightly different in terms of my passion. So, given your childhood interest in birds, I am mystified as to why at university you went into botany. So I applied to do biology at Nottingham University, and I didn't get the good enough grades to do zoology, which is what I wanted to apply to. So I did botany instead, study of plants. But what I lack in intellect, I make up for by being Machiavellian and sly. So when I got to university, I did a subsidiary subject in zoology. So I did botany with zoology subsidy, so I did biology. So I had a fantastic time there. And the key thing for me at university was I suddenly found my tribe of people. People who are interested in wildlife. People who are keen to go bird watching. Mike fesses up to having been less than purely studious during those years. On the one hand, he made a bit of an attempt to study wildlife, and on the other hand, he was often derailed by the wild sort of life that undergrads often indulge in. I was either in bird watching all the time and missing lectures, or I was in nightclubs, dancing, chatting to girls. So I'd be birding by day and birding by night. And that's all I did for three years at university. I went to very few lectures. At least not until he left Nottingham University and finally knuckled down as a graduate student in North Wales, where he earnestly applied himself. It was a one-year course of study at Bangor University. And I did more work in that one year at Bangor, doing my master's in ecology, than I'd done in my previous three years at Nottingham. So the course is nine months, lectures, practicals, essays, field courses, and then a three-month thesis at the end. One of the ex-students from the master's course worked in the cloud forests of Ecuador in South America. And he said, do any of the current crop of students want to come to Ecuador, to the cloud forests, to come and do their master's thesis? And three of us said, yes, please. Well, I can see the appeal there and would sign up quickly to finish up my studies and write a thesis in the wilds of Ecuador. But... To be honest, I might want to know first exactly what a cloud forest is and what I'd be getting into. So imagine if you're a raindrop in the Pacific and you join loads of other raindrops and you're moving with the prevailing easterlies over the coastal forest of Ecuador and then you hit the western slopes of the Andes and you're forced up by the prevailing wind and slowly gets colder and it condenses, and the cloud actually sits in the canopy of the forest. And we're talking an altitude between about 1,000 to 2,000 metres, so 3,500 feet to 7,000 feet. 
So it's an amazing place. It's a world epicenter for orchids that are epiphytic, that live up in the canopy, for bromeliads, that member of the pineapple family, and also for hummingbirds and tanagers as well, these multicolored rainforest birds. So I decided to do my project on moths, macrolepidoptera in the cloud forest. So I took two moth traps with me. I put one moth trap in the forest and I put one moth trap outside in a deforested area. And I ran these traps simultaneously. And I came to the stunning conclusion that if you chop the forest down, you get less moths in one trap than the other. So I was moth trapping by night and bird watching by day. And I was in heaven. Hummingbirds, toucans, tanagers, Andy and Cock of the Rock. It was amazing. And I came back, got a job in Britain, and I thought, I'm going to spend my whole life looking at tropical birds. So that's what enabled me to go to Tanzania, looking at the rainforest, at Vietnam. And then I went back to Ecuador. So I'd spent about five years working away, picking up lots of weird diseases, seeing amazing wildlife. And that's when television came my way. Now, as to the weird diseases, you're not joshing there. You're leveling with me, aren't you? You had a multiplicity of pathological encounters. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I have been nicknamed Britain's most diseased man, Marcus, because I've had in no particular order bilharzia, leishmaniasis, septicemia, ringworm, roundworm, filariasis, botflies, chiggers, tropical yaws. But, I mean, they're all manageable. That's all part and parcel of working in the tropics. You've got to take one for the team if you're going to see toucans and cock of the rocks and all these wonderful birds. Mike seems like a fellow who comes upon certain junctures in life, sees the possibilities, and just goes for it, like when he first got binoculars and a bird book, or when someone suggests, hey, come on over to Ecuador, or like this next turning point on his second stint in Ecuador, when he fortuitously fell in with a British TV crew that were looking to interview. The situation unfolded for him as an impromptu screen test that would change his life. And I was interviewed at this reserve called Maki Bakuna, all about cloud forests. And it was the first time I'd ever met a TV crew. And it was a fantastic experience. I took them round the reserve and we filmed lovely shots of the orchids and bromeliads, shots of the clouds sitting in the cloud forest. Then the time came to interview me and the director, who I'm still friends with, I see regularly, a chap called Rob, he said to me, Mike, it's obvious you're into birds. And I was like, yeah, I like birds a lot. Yeah. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the cameraman to turn over. I mean, the tape to turn over. The sound recorder is going to make sure we're clear for sound. And then when I say action, could you talk about the birds? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. And he said, okay, Mike, yeah, yeah. turn over camera, clear for sound, action. I saw this amazing bird in the cloud forest of Ecuador here called the Andean Cock of the Rock. The males are bright fuchsia pink with black and silver wings, yellow legs and white eye and a massive big crest. Now, the Andean cock of the rock is a lecking bird. So dawn and dusk, they'll go to the same ancestral lecking tree to display to the females. Now, I don't often get a chance to say lek, L-E-K, or lecking. And you may not know this term either, so here's a quick aside. Just to explain that a lek is a group of male animals that come together in the breeding season at a certain place for competitive displays, rivaling over the females. A lot of birds behave this way, but apparently also some insects, ants and bees, flies, butterflies. 
So the sounds Mike was making for the TV crew as the tape rolled were the sounds you would hear at a lek made by a male cock of the rock. And the females are nothing like the males. They're dull, boring and dowdy. They're olive green. They do all the hard work. They lay the eggs, they incubate them, they feed the chicks. The males do nothing. They're just dandies. They're show-offs. So all of a sudden a female turns up in the tree to check out these 10 or 15 males and the crest goes up and they start flapping their black and silver wings and they're going, and the males are looking at the female and the female's looking at the males and the female flies off. She's like, whatever. And all the males are like downhearted and their crest flops and they wait for another female to turn up. So I did this impersonation (laughs) and the guy said, you've got to get on television with these impersonations. And the short and long is I moved back to Britain. I moved down to Bristol, which is the home of the famous BBC Natural History Unit, where David Attenborough makes most of his programmes. And I tried to get my way into television. And with that one tape, I got work as a TV presenter. And I really haven't looked back since. Our guest for this episode of Constant Wonder is Mike Dilger. In Britain, he is very well known indeed as a naturalist and a presenter on BBC television. His new book is titled 1,000 Shades of Green, A Year in Search of Britain's Wild Plants. That mating call of a cock of the rock somewhere in the Andes, Having heard Mike now imitating that and describing it, well, I'm just going to say it. Mike has a charisma. It's not hard to detect at all. And because he weighs more than 100 pounds, he actually meets the criteria for classification as a specimen of charismatic megafauna. Down in Ecuador that day, uh, on the spot, the TV producers recognized him for what he is. And with their discovery... He was soon on his way to a life in television. His work is seen on The One Show from the BBC, and he's appeared on that show over 400 times. Another strand of his story that's of considerable interest is that once he was living back in Britain again and aiming to settle down among birds less gaudy and raucous than those competing for mates in equatorial regions, Mike undertook quite a grand experiment. He decided he wanted to try to transform part of his yard into a nature reserve. It's the kind of experiment that speaks to me in a very big way, and I wanted to get all the details from him. Mike, not all that long ago, I had an opportunity to interview a writer by the name of Adam Nicholson. And Nicholson had made his way to Scotland to conduct an experiment of sorts. And he went out to the coastline and he made these tide pools to see what might come and inhabit them. And he had this wonderful term. You've mentioned biodiversity. The term he introduced me to is bioreceptivity. He wanted to set the stage so that wildlife could come and inhabit those pools that he had made. You have a parallel project where you took a yard, a garden, and you said, I'm going to invite creatures. I'm going to invite things to come my way. Tell us that story and introduce us to Christina while you're at it. Well, I met Christina in television. There's a very famous program in Britain called Spring Watch. And I've worked a little bit on Spring Watch as a researcher behind the scenes and also as a reporter or presenter on screen. It was love over television, love over wildlife. We first lived in Bristol and then we moved out south of Bristol about nine miles or 15 kilometers south 
to an area called the Chew Valley, which is where I live now. And we have a son who's 10 years of age, but he came a little bit later on. But one thing I really wanted to do was I wanted to own a garden and turn my own back garden into a mini nature reserve. I've always been a slightly frustrated nature reserve warden. I've always wanted to kind of have my own real estate, my own green real estate, and turn it into a nature reserve and make it as attractive for wildlife as possible. My garden is not huge, but size really does not matter with gardens. It's all about location, location, location. And I live in a great area. It's a very rural area, lots of big gardens nearby. And I've basically got one, if you imagine gardens, I've got one patchwork quilt of a garden. But I've only got that one patch, but all the other gardens together make for a massive patchwork quilt. And that's the great joy of gardens. Per square foot, they're as rich as rainforests. Because my garden, for example, has got, if you've got a, bit of, if you've got a tiny pond, that's a wetland. If you've got some lawn, that's a grassland. If you've got one or two trees, that's a woodland. And if you've got a tiny area, which is forgotten about, that's an area of scrub. People ask me all the time, how do you make your back garden more attractive to wildlife? And I say three words, just add water. A bit like Adam Nicholson did in a, in a roundabout way. And we dug a hole in the garden, put a butyl rubber liner in, and it was remarkable seeing the wildlife turn up, Marcus. Within a day, pond skaters, gerids, were whizzing all over the surface. And we found water boatmen, back swimmers, caddisfly larvae, damselflies, dragonflies, all came in. And by not mowing the lawn, the wildflowers that came up were astonishing. We put bird boxes up. And it was just amazing just seeing the wildlife just turn up. So, yeah, we still have a nature reserve in our garden. It's no bigger than a tennis court in size, but it's not about the size. It's what you do with your green real estate. That's what really counts. Mike's vision for the yard was pretty radical. And at first, he and Christina were a bit at cross purposes with the details. We had our moments during the project because my natural reaction is to kind of leave it wild and, and non-interventionist. And Christina's a gardener. She's a professional gardener. She runs her own gardening business. So she wants to nip and tug and prime. And, and oh, maybe we should take that tree down. It's like, no. Yeah, she likes weeding and I love weeds because weeds are only plants growing where you don't want them to grow. So to, to me, they weren't weeds. But to Christina, they were because they were in the wrong place. So I love weeds. And Christina makes a living out of pulling them out of the ground. So there is a little bit of a conflict of interest there. But we generally, we muddle along and we're very proud of our garden. So is it too much to say that your approach and her approach are complementary? Yes, I think so. I think we both love wildlife. We both love spending time in our garden. I have bird feeders all over the garden, so we see the birds coming in throughout the winter all the time, and we just take a massive amount of enjoyment. For example, we had a green woodpecker in the garden, and she came and said, green woodpecker in the garden, green woodpecker in the garden. I dashed in there into the kitchen. We've got a big view, big load of glass at the back, and we watched the green woodpecker anting in the meadow because they come down onto the meadow, the little bit of meadow we've got on the bottom, and it feeds on the ants. So she was as excited as me that we'd found this fantastic bird in our garden. So, yeah, sometimes we pull in different directions, but, you know, I'm slightly more rain man 
Dustin Hoffman rain man about it. I I like to list all the birds that come into my garden. I like to identify a new species of butterfly or a new bumblebee that's come into the garden. I'm more binoculars, whereas Christina's more wide lens. She's more holistic and loves the flow of the garden, the feng shui or the yin and yang of the garden. Whereas I'm all about, what's the wildlife in the garden? So we look at it from a different perspective, but they're complementary, I think. You use that word complementary, and I agree with you, Marcus. Complementary. In a thriving ecosystem, at least so I've read, complementarity is observed when differences between species, functional groups, or genotypes, when the differences somehow work together to enhance the well-being of the whole. So whatever Mike and Christina have chosen to do together for their yard, it seems to be working. By the way, if you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, we have a bonus garden scene at the very end. It's with Mike and Christina at one of life's important junctures. It's bound to make you smile. Mike's most recent grand scheme has been more directly botanical. It involves the thrill of the hunt, even though, as we all know, plants tend to put roots in the ground, which tethers them to one spot. How hard can it possibly be to track down a wild plant if it doesn't migrate nomadically or fly or scamper away when spooked by the slightest noise? Well, Mike knows otherwise. He set out in the year 2021 to find 1,000 plants in a single calendar year. 1,000 Shades of Green, if you will. That's the title of his new book. It's an account of his journey across Britain to spend time in the company of scores of different plant species, both common and rare. If you remember the beginning of this episode, Mike was far from home, yearning, practically pining away to locate a particular rare plant. So, Mike, you've left us dangling as to what particular plant you were in search of with Barbara that day in Scotland, in the Highlands, on the top of the mountain. Tell us about this plant and convince me that I should care about it. Well, it was probably the most important plant. It's the number one plant, the one I was most excited to see out of all the thousand wild plants I saw in 2021. It's a plant that nobody's ever heard of. It's a plant that exists on three mountaintops in northwest Scotland. It's found in northern Norway. It's found in the Urals in northern Russia. And that is it. It's got this weird disjunct population. So Scotland, Norway, and the Urals. And it's got a lovely name. It's called Norwegian Mugwort. And it's beautiful. Its foliage is incredibly green and hairy. Now, I think it's hairy for a reason. It's hairy to keep it warm in these Arctic conditions. And also the hairs help with water conservation. But the flowers are what it's all about. And this little stem pops out of this green foliage. A slender stem and a a little yellow flowering head nods coquettishly in the breeze and it was about the size of a yellow smarty sweet so we're talking about one and one and a half centimeters across and it was just nodding there and as we looked around we found more plants and occasionally a few plants had two nodding heads and it was there was hardly anything else there and to be honest Marcus when I found it I sunk to my knees I looked at this beautiful flower a little tear came out of my eye. 
I was so excited, so relieved, and it was so beautiful. It was just going, here I am. I was waiting for you all the time. And it was just beautiful. And that is, in essence, it's the addiction of finding anything rare, be it birds, mammals, or plants. You use your skill as a naturalist, and you look around and you use your field skills as a, as a naturalist detective. And eventually it pays off. And two days of blood, sweat, and tears paid off right there because we found the plant and it was number 779 on my list but it was number one why 1000 plants how did this first come about apart from that bit about inspiration during a morning shower well you got to remember that this coincides with the arrival of covid the lockdown in Britain robbed Mike of a lot of his TV engagements and restrictions on movement in the UK, you might remember, were very tight during the early part of the pandemic. So Mike and his wife Christina and their son Zachary were mostly confined within the walls of their own home. That is simply no good for nature lovers. Fortunately, the regulations in the UK did allow for a short daily outing, a reprieve for physical exercise and a little bit of mental sanity. We were only allowed out for an hour a day. But I would have the most amazing time walking with my boy. It was my mental health. It was my green gym. I need to see wildlife for my mental well-being. So that was my one hour to go and look at wildlife. And it was a green classroom for Zachary. I had to take him out and we'd be identifying the birds. But I know all the birds. So there was nothing to learn there. And so I started to look at the flowers at my feet and back in the day, of course, I had a degree in botany, but you can graduate from a degree in botany without being able to identify plants. And I knew, I knew some plants, of course. I knew daisies and dandelions and daffodils and all these common plants. But some of the more difficult plants that require a bit of knowledge, like the violets or the forget-me-nots, that there's quite a few species that are quite closely related that look quite similar. You have to get down on your hands and knees, and you need an eye lens to look at them. And I suddenly found myself getting into this world of wonder, I'd, identifying all these plants. I took my plant book out with me, and that was it. It was like taking the handbrake off my botanizing. And I started to identify all these plants that I'd never seen before, that I'd lazily gone, oh, it's a violet. And I'd find out if it was sweet violet, or hairy violet, or early dog violet, or pale heath violet. And it was just amazing. And the moment you can identify something, it's just wonderful. And so what were you aiming for, actually, with this botanical year, 2021? What mission had you set for yourself? I try and see a thousand different species of plants in one year. Would I be able to find these plants and would I be able to identify them? That was what I was worried about. So I did a huge amount of research work at the back end of 2020, trying to find where are the best places to go. And then reading botanical textbooks, how to identify grasses, sedges, rushes and ferns, all these slightly difficult groups. You look in the book and you see the features and you can identify and you know what it's called. And the moment you can give it a name, a scientific name or a common name, then you can learn more about it. If 2021 was to be your botanical year, had you done the math? I've done the math. That's 2.739 dot, 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 dot plants per day across a year. Yeah. And also, it's more difficult than that, because obviously in January, February and March, there's not much in flower. 
April, May, June, July is when it all happens. And in October, November and December, there's hardly anything flowering. And I want to see the plants at their best. I included trees as well as flowers. But I wanted to see the flowers when they were flowering, not when they were shriveled up specimens or when they just poked their head above the ground. So actually, in those key months of May, June, July, then I really had to see a lot. And I became obsessed. Every dog walk, I'd be trying to see new plants. I wanted to try and make the, the project as carbon conscious as possible. So probably at least half of the thousand plants were seen very close to home. And that's the joy. You walk out of your back door, you're finding hairy bittercress, you're finding common groundsel. And that was it. I was off. I was identifying plants 50 yards from my garden. On many of these forays out to see the plants you had as your companion, Zachary. Yes. I wanted to include my family as being a key component of it. And actually, they were a real asset. We called ourselves the Chew Stoke, which is the village I live in, the Chew Stoke Botanical Group. And I realized they were amazing. My wife is a gardener. She was brilliant on escape horticultural plants, better than me. My son, because he's very young, has amazing visual acuity. So he could spot the rare plants. And my dog, Bramble, a border collie who's now five, was three at the time, had this remarkable propensity to go to a nature reserve and we on, or urinate, as you say, on the most unusual plant in the whole nature reserve. <laughs> so actually, working together, we were quite a powerful collective of botanists together. And Zachary would love that. I'd say, right, here's the picture of the plant I want to find, Zachary. Go and find it. And he'd be like a botanical bloodhound. He'd sniff it out. And he'd go, is this it? And I'd be like, yeah, well done, you. Did you ever look at him? Did you ever see yourself, the young boy, going after birds or trains? He's a chip off the old block. He's like me, he's obsessed with wildlife. He loves it. We do actually a lot of television together as well. We've made eight or nine films all about watching wildlife as a father-son combination. And that started in lockdown. We made a lockdown film about me and Zachary enjoying our back garden. And he loves it. I mean, natural history is such an easy sell. It's amazing. This podcast is called Constant Wonder. I have constant wonder about the natural world. The more I learn about wildlife, the more I realize I know nothing at all, Marcus. It's very awe-inspiring. Hi, this is Tenery. I want to tell you about a brand new BYU radio podcast. The show is called Kaboom. Episodes are 15 to 20 minutes, and they're immersive audio dramas that the whole family can listen to together. Each episode takes you on a new adventure. Here's a little trailer. It's happening. It's happening! It's time for Kaboom! Original audio dramas full of adventure, wonder, and sometimes even... A dragon? A zombie? It's a show made for the whole family to enjoy together that will get you saying... How about that? You can do anything. You're kind of weird, you know that? Kaboom! Season 1 is available now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I love it. Now back to Constant Wonder. To reach 1,000 plants, Mike would, of course, need to go further than just out to his garden. 
Sometimes he went at his own peril. He's told us about that mountain in the Scottish Highlands, Colmore, and finding his plant 779, the Norwegian mugwort. Norwegian mugwort, he fancied that to be a lovely name. But early star of Bethlehem, that name is far more mellifluous, at least to my ears. And here he is describing the lengths he went just to find one. Early star of Bethlehem is a plant called Gagia bohemica, is its scientific name, and it is incredibly rare. It's only found on one cliff face in the entire British Isles, right on the border of England and Wales. And I got there and I did a little bit of research work and knew that it was on this cliff face. And I got there and I just thought, I'm never going to find this. I'm looking at a sheer rock face. How am I going to find this impossibly rare flower? And to make it even more difficult, not only is it rare, but only one in a thousand plants ever produce a flower. So most of the time you're looking for these green, sprouty leaves, which are really thin, almost like little green needle leaves. So I'm clambering up the cliff face uh, and I can't find it anywhere. I, I come down again and I try the other side of the cliff face. And I'm not as young as I used to be. And at one point I was on this ledge and I looked back behind me and I thought, if I fall off now, at best it's an ambulance, at worst it's a hearse. But I thought, I haven't come all this way just to give up so easily. So I worked my way along this ledge and I really banged my shin on this little bit of rock sticking out. So I clattered my shin. Oh, my, so painful. But then I worked my way along and I found this ledge widened out. And it was an area that I couldn't see from down below at the bottom of the cliff. And I found all these little cages. And underneath there were all these green sprouting leaves. And I thought, that must be it. But it was still early in the year and my level of botany was not commensurate with my ability to say 100% that's it. So I got down, I thought I'll photograph these, what look like leaves. And then I got up and I stood up and I looked down and one single little yellow flower was there. And I knew that was it because the petals are really weird on early star of Bethlehem because quite often they're malformed. So all the petals aren't properly formed and they have these green tram lines running from the center of the flower to the outer edge of the petal. So I knew I'd found that one flower. That's all I needed to find one flower. It was an absolutely beautiful moment. And were I not on a tiny ledge 20 meters off the ground, I'd done a little jig or a dance of delight. And that's that one moment, more than any other, I knew that this plant-hunting lark was so, so addictive. And I got off the ledge, walked down to my car to drive off for my filming job, and I knew that the, the, the grin on my face would last longer than the bruise on my shin. I was so thrilled. There is a moment that I know you have experienced because I've experienced it in a similar context. At the top of a mountain, at 11,000-plus feet, looking for a flower, perhaps not rare, but certainly not common at lower elevations, called the Perry's Primrose. It's a flower here in the American West. And there is this moment that comes when after you have found it in full display, full bloom, you have to leave and you turn your back on it. And I just, I'm so wistful in that moment. Anything like that for you? 
I've totally had that. It's amazing you say that. Whenever I find a rare plant, quite often I have to touch it and slightly, it sounds a bit weird, but I have to fondle it. And I have this kind of little moment and turning your back on something so beautiful, knowing you might not never see it again, it's quite bittersweet actually. I had a plant called Meadow Clary, which I saw, which is another beautiful plant, it's a salvia. It's very rare in Britain, and it is the most beautiful plant in Britain that's not an orchid. And I remember distinctly with my colleagues saying, oh, isn't that lovely? Let's go find something else. And I was like, I had to tear myself away from it. It was like, I had this sirenic charm. It was so beautiful. Violet blue colour, this bilaterally symmetrical flower. It was so gorgeous. I really found it hard to turn my back on. You're absolutely right. We've got the same problem. We have this expression, wallflower. The wallflower in society is the most unlikely candidate for our observation, right? When I first went out in the wild here in the Rocky Mountains and saw wallflowers, I found them stunning. Is there an experience you might have for us of an improbable candidate for your observation and then you had to repent of that sin? I was lucky enough to go botanizing with an amazing guy called Simon Harrop. And he's one of Britain's best botanists. And he took me out for two days into Breckland in Norfolk and Suffolk to look for all these rare, weird, small plants that are only found in Breckland and nowhere else. And he said, be ready, Michael, you're going to be underwhelmed. And he found me this really rare stone crop called Crassula tilea, And it's little tiny red plant. And he said, I tell you what, there it is, Mike, isn't it underwhelming? And I got down on my hands and knees, I took my eye lens out and I looked at it and I brought my 20 times out as well. I looked at it my 20 times and I had to say, Simon, I disagree. It's overwhelming. It's anything but underwhelming. I mean, the more obscure, the more scratty, the more minuscule, the more forgotten. I'm a champion of the underdog. So all these plants, I mean, the polar bears, the grizzly bears, the tigers, the lions, they get all our attention. But it's the small guys that rule the roost. Can you now give me a little bit of just a few thoughts about this plant blindness that so many of us suffer from? I suffer from it as well. We use this phrase plant blindness. Even people who are quite keen natural historians or naturalists, they don't really look at wild plants. I've made something like 450 films on the one show and about five or six out of that 450 are on plants. So we're talking 1%. One of the great joys when I was doing my big botanical year was that I'd go to this nature reserve. For example, Teesdale up in the north of England in Cumbria, this amazing place in the heart of the Pennines, the backbone that runs through England. And I was looking for this amazing plant called spring gentian, the bluest flower in the world. And it's incredibly rare. And it opens up these petals, it splays them. And it's an absolute stunner. And I went there and looking for this plant and nobody else was there. If it was a bird reserve with a rare bird, there'd be 30, 40 people looking for the rare bird. But the beauty and the tragedy in equal measure was I had the place to myself. Nobody else is enjoying them. If you can't get people enjoying them, you can't get people wanting to protect them, wanting to conserve them. 
And that's the thing that I've found, that all my friends who are naturalists, very few of them are looking at plants. There's a lot of worry in the plant community where people say, should you tell people where the rare plants are? Because the worry is they may get trampled or they may get dug up by people. I say, tell them, because for every one plant that is dug up or accidentally trampled, a thousand different botanical sites have been tarmacked over, have had a housing development put on it, because no one knows they're there. No one cares about them. These places have to be shown and have to be celebrated. And that's the only way they'll be protected. Botany is just amazing. It's just amazing. Why aren't more people doing it? What's wrong with these people? Get into plants, it's amazing. Thanks for catching this episode of Constant Wonder with botanist, naturalist, and wildlife advocate Mike Dilger. His new book is titled 1,000 Shades of Green, A Year in Search of Britain's Wild Plants. Stay tuned for a short bonus segment if you're listening to our full podcast. This episode with Mike was produced by Eric Schultzka and Colson Darrington. Sound design by Kevin West and Mitchell Towsley. With Season 4 of Constant Wonder now underway, here's a little nudge for you, something you can do to spread the word about this podcast. Whatever your preferred platform, be sure to give us a glowing rating and review there, and then, of course, just pass word along to friends, family, colleagues, associates. Basically, anybody whose life will be enriched by what we're undertaking to do here, our quest to explore and recognize the power of awe and wonder in our lives. Just tell people we're here and maybe mention one of your favorite episodes. And as always, thanks to you for listening. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. I've been with Christine and by now for about 10 years. And at some point, she thought I was going to ask her to marry me. <laughs> and she kind of forgotten the fact that I was going to ask her at some point and maybe just thought I was never going to ask her. And I conceived this plan that I would have a ring made out of oak and yew, so a wooden ring, and I would put into the nest box... And on the 31st of January 2012, I would hold the ladder and say, oh, it's time to clean out the bird boxes on our last day of the, on our last day of the year. So she would go up there and um, she would open the nest box up and she'd see this little box within a box and open it and see this ring in. And I would, she'd kind of see this box, open it, and then I would go, will you marry me from the bottom of the ladder? So I, I put the ring in the box in the box and I'm saying oh right, time to time to clear out she said, oh no I'm busy I'm busy I'm weeding no 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 you you must do it you must come on come on and she didn't want to do it so I eventually persuaded her to climb up the ladder she opened the box and then she saw this little box inside and she opened it and I suddenly realized that Christina had opened this box and she knew it was a ring and she knew I was going to ask and she almost fell off the ladder and she fell, almost fell onto me at the bottom I hadn't thought it through properly and I just kind of, I was just so choked. I couldn't actually get those 
will you marry those four words out but eventually she did and she looked around and said of course and um she came down and we had a big hug and the only people watching was no one watching the only uh, witnesses we had were the chickens april may and june <laughs> 